Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive approaches to the history of popular music. In this, my second episode on the blues, I discuss the image of the crossroads as an emblem for the various intersections of culture, individualism, communality, and self-worth blacks faced in the early decades of the 20th century. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. Crossroads is one of the few symbols that seems to be truly transhistorical and transcultural. Almost since the very moment that there were such things as crossroads, people have used them to represent various problems that face humans, especially in their sense of temporality, the way in which humans relate to the past, the present, and the future, because that's what the crossroads come to represent as we'll see. So you have all sorts of different cultures, Japanese culture, Roman, uh, Greek, ancient Greek, English culture, and African cultures, all of which are very concerned with this notion of the crossroads, right? In, in Rome, of course, you have Janus, the, the two-faced god who's looking toward the, the future and toward the past at once, and so is always living in this kind of liminal space called betwixt and between, two senses of time, just as we all are. We all build on our past, and we project ourselves into the future. The things we do now aren't just things that we're doing for now. We're doing them in service of something. We're doing them in hopes of going somewhere else. And we're building on the places we've already been. And that's what the crossroads is to a certain extent, as we see. You also have, of course, Hecata from ancient Greece, right? The, the witch, uh, a conduit to the underworld. And so this is another version of the of the crossroads, this place where where two different kinds of space intersect. The Greek Hermes, right? Another messenger between the living and the dead. So we're seeing a pattern here already. In England, uh, the crossroads used to serve as a burial place for people who committed suicide, for executed criminals, and for witches. In other words, for people who wouldn't have been buried in, in church-sanctioned cemeteries. But also, a superstition grew up around this notion that executed criminals would be looking for revenge. Suicides were, were lost and didn't have a, a clear path to heaven. And so the, the crossroads represented that in some fashion, that, that being caught between paths and not knowing which one is the proper one to take. Of course, in, in African-derived um, religions and belief systems, you have people like the, the Haitian uh, trickster god, Papa Legba, right, who's a trickster Loa, who occupies the, the crossroads. Now, this is a trickster god. It's not Satan. Sometimes uh, we hear these folk tales and mythologies that involve Satan or representations of Satan at the crossroads. Think of Mephistopheles and Faust or, or you know, the, the story of, of Robert Johnson, which we'll come up to in a moment. Um, but Papa Legba is a different kind of character. He's not necessarily evil. He's, not, he's neither one or the other exactly. He's a trickster. He's, he, as long as you appease him, he'll help you on your way. If not, he'll play a trick on you. 
But what he does is he occupies this space between the living and the dead, between the past and the future, between a decisions made and decisions yet to be made. And that's why uh, Papa Legba is often associated in the, that syncretic fashion that often happens with uh, various religions like voodoo, where they, they add in elements of Christianity in order to, to combine them in various ways, right? Um, and Papa Legba gets associated with Peter, with Anthony, and with Lazarus. And I think those, those are interesting uh, saints for him to be associated right, with, right? Uh, after all, Peter is the foundation in some ways, he's the, he's the rock upon which Christ built the church, right? So this foundational aspect. Anthony, of course, with his temptations, and Lazarus coming from, Lazarus coming from the dead and returning to the living. So once again, you have all these representations of the, of the foundational, but also the connection between the distant past with the dead and the present, but also the, the living and the dead in general, and then the temptation. Because that's what crossroads can also represent, right? The temptation to go the other way. Now we, of course, have the song Crossroad Blues by Robert Johnson, where in that song, despite all the legends that, that he may have sold his, his soul to the devil in order to, uh, to get better at playing guitar and singing the blues, in that song, he just finds himself at a crossroads looking for a ride. And all the strangers pass him by, and no one will, will allow him to get in. So what is he doing at the crossroads? He's looking for escape. He's looking to go somewhere else. But he feels alienated. He's in a sense of loss. He's worried about the darkness creeping in. He's worried about the idea that he may not find love again. He mentions the, the care and love of a, of a, a, a past girlfriend. He's worried about friendship. He calls out to his friend Willie Brown, who if he knew, if Willie Brown knew that he was in these straits, he would help him. So he's looking for human kindness. He's looking for assistance. Let's listen to a version of this song. You should, of course, listen to the Robert Johnson original, but just to get it in our heads a bit and to remind ourselves of these themes. Down to the crossroads, still there on my bed. 
what is so special about the crossroads? I mean, there's plenty we can say about the, the tune itself, and we'll come back and talk about it in a moment. But why the crossroads? Why is this such an integral symbol, not just for blues tradition, but for, for African traditions, Japanese traditions, ancient Roman and Greek traditions, English traditions? Why the crossroads over and over again? Well, as we've already hinted at, the crossroads are the site of a decision, right? You come to the crossroads, and there are various ways you might go. And because we are finite creatures and we can never have all of the experiences we might wish to have, that other road, the road not taken, is always going to be tempting. We're always going to wonder what was down that street as opposed to the other, right? So the crossroad is an opportunity for a decision, for a way to to live otherwise. It's an experience of the otherwise. I might go that way. I'm planning to go this way. I might go that way. What would happen if I went that way? So the crossroads become a kind of liminal space. You're caught between and betwixt things. You're neither where you were nor where you're heading. And there's this possibility of another place, right? It's not a simple line. It's not a matter of just going from from place A to place B. There's also C and D that are on offer here. And who knows what experiences we might have with C and D. And so at that moment, we really feel the presence of the present in the crossroads, because we're between the past and the future, and the future is untold at this point. On a symbolic level, right, the cross as a figure has an ancient uh, pedigree. It goes way, way back in human history. It's not just a Christian symbol, as I'm I'm sure you already know. Uh, And part of that has to do with the intersection of the vertical and the horizontal, which come to represent all sorts of things, right? The horizontal can be uh, a sense of, of being laid back, of not being as forceful, as relaxing. Uh, the vertical often is associated with force, with, with impulsion and propulsion, right? You also have the notion of the intersection of the human and the otherworldly, where the, the mortal meets the immortal, where our sense of, of impermanence meets the permanence, the, the infinity of the universe and of possibility. So the crossroads becomes a kind of no place, Of course, no place, another way of saying no place is a kind of utopia, right? A utopia, we we tend to think of utopia as being this this perfect place. But the term itself means no place, because that's, after all, what you're talking about. There is no perfect place. And the crossroads kind of inverts that notion of the no place. It makes it clear that it's not a perfect place, that you're stuck. You're stuck in the midst of decision. You're stuck in this liminality. You're neither here nor you're there. But all the possibilities are open to you. So, so what you have is the, this notion of, think about what a road is for one second, right? A road has to do with a trajectory. The road is a conduit to get from one place to another. But what happens when one conduit intersects with another? It creates a place. But it creates a very special kind of place. It creates a kind of node. So that you have these two trajectories let's say a horizontal and a vertical trajectory. And the point of the crossroads is that this is where it intersects. So it is a place that becomes a kind of no place. It's a place that becomes a place not where you're going to stay. This is why it's a somewhat haunted place, haunted with spirits, haunted with various gods, haunted by the, the, the in England, by the uh, witches and the executed criminals that are buried there, right? So it's a problematic space, and yet it is a space of opportunity. Now, the blues, as I mentioned in the last episode, 
It's the ultimate form, in my opinion, of musical absorption. It draws on all these other aspects of music, these other genres. I don't think of the blues as simply a 12-bar form, right? It's absorbing things from ragtime. It's absorbing things from, from Tim Pan Alley and Broadway tunes. It's, it's an absorptive genre. And so the blues then becomes about crossings. And those crossings have to do with white and black musical traditions. It has to do with the communal and the individual, as we'll see in a moment. The crossing between the religious and the secular, the agrarian and the modern, the traditional and the popular with respect to music. Let's see how some of that works. Once I lived the life of a millionaire Spending all my money well I didn't care African-American music must eventually face is the question of just what aspects of this music came from Africa and what aspects were adaptations here in the in the United States. The problem of course is certain things are fairly evident. The banjo is clearly a adaptation of an instrument that was used in Africa. Certain approaches to the rhythm are clearly adaptations of things that, that were happening in Africa. But when we get to other details, the details that really interest us when we're talking about the blues, a lot is left open to argument. It's very difficult to trace with any certainty what is often called the survivals, right? What is it that survived from African practices uh, through the course of the Middle Passage, through the course of the fact that many slaves did not come from the same tribes, did not come from the same areas, right? Um, and therefore were forced to mix. Families were, were, were often separated, right, by design in order to, to be able to have greater control over these people as property. And so the assumption is sometimes that those traditions were very early on lost. This was very typical in receptions of, of African music uh, right through the middle of the 20th century. It was very typical to, to start a study of, of uh, African American music by stipulating that all of the traditional approaches to, to musical understanding were lost and then African Americans had to find new ways to create expression and so on. That's no longer the most prevalent point of view. Now people are interested less in the notion of survivals, 
than in the notion, as V.V. Clark and Lawrence Levine urge us, uh, in uh, the, the issue of transformations. That what we should be concerned with isn't the idea that something survived intact from Africa. Because that's not how tradition works anyway. Tradition, living tradition, always involves transformation. It always involves adaptation to current circumstances. And what more radical shift in circumstance can we imagine in human life than enslavement? So let's talk about some predecessors to the blues and keep in mind that these are adaptations of African practices that are being brought into confrontation with a radical new situation and, and a radical new set of needs and desires that are being expressed and articulated through music. It's very typical to trace uh, the blues back to work songs and field hollers, right? Uh, work songs, of course, are used to organize uh, the, the labor that slaves were forced to do. So from the 1830s, there's a, a, an interesting account, I think, uh, from a white uh, Floridian who's being um, uh, carried across the water by, by some um, black sailors, uh, rowers. And he describes them singing as they work. And he says that some of these songs were full of rude wit and a lucky hit always drew a thundering chorus from the rowers, an encouraging laugh from the occupants of the stern seats. Right? So there's this element of singing these songs in part to organize work, but in part also to express uh, one's disappointment with one's situation. Uh, there's a, a famous story of, of one person who early on was transcribing uh, lyrics to work songs, a white man, uh, ethnomusicologist, and he's sitting on a wall uh, trying to figure out what they're saying. Uh, they're at a distance, and he didn't want to sort of, you know, impose upon them too closely. And he's working, at it, working it out and trying to listen carefully. He finally realizes that what they're singing is about the lazy white man sitting on the wall, wasting his time instead of doing something. Right? So this is very typical. There are other stories from the, from the um, 1800s, of, uh, again, of black rowers, that the songs constantly involve whiskey because some of the white passengers are drinking whiskey and they're looking for a quick dram, right? Um, so there's this aspect of, of trying to communicate one's, one's disappointment or one's needs or one's desires at the same time as you're organizing work through, through rhythmic organization. Right, um, the very famous blues and and folk singer Lead Belly, uh, who used to lead a work crew, he would talk about the fact that he could make these workers pretty much do what he wanted. He could speed up the song or slow down the song. He could make the work more vigorous or less vigorous. And he's working as he's singing, right? So he's he's the, these work songs are, are leaders, but they involve a call and response technique. So they involve this a sense of communality, even though there is a a clear leader. Uh, to the whole thing. Even field hollers, right? The notion of a holler is for someone to holler back or to hear your, your uh, requests and so on. So there's this element of communality. Spirituals are another aspect, and, and uh, Frederick, if we're to believe, and I don't see why we wouldn't, Frederick Douglass and other authorities uh, from the 1800s on, on black life, spirituals were the main form of musical expression prior to the Civil War according to these figures. And so, again, the, there's uh, we all know about uh, the way in which the spirituals were used for, 
for instance, the Underground Railroad is these messages. Um, Frederick Douglass says that when they're singing old Canaan and longing for Canaan, that in a way what they're talking about is the North, right? That there's always a double-codedness to the spirituals. And it has to do with this sense of the communal striving for a better place, both in this world and in the next, right? So you have the religiosity, you have the the communality, uh, and you have the call and response nature all built into it. Now, to a certain extent, the blues draws on some of this, right? Uh, this, this commentary aspect, for instance. But now, instead of being directed against specific situations, instead of it being a sort of uh, us uh, versus them or us in relation to them, uh, a black community in relation to uh, white oppression, the blues tend to be more about the individual. And we'll talk in the next segment as to why that might be or some of the reasons why that might be. And yet, there's still this element of the communal, in, in at least two senses. One is the notion that my blues, my bad feeling, my discontentment, my alienation from the world is something that you can also relate to. This is why sometimes uh, people say that the blues ain't nothing but a feeling, right? That it's, uh, it's something that goes beyond specifications of musical style or, or any kind of uh, essential characteristics that we can lay out, that it's, it's about this somewhat ineffable, indescribable feeling. That's one part of its communal nature. The other part is, is a little more straightforward, which is that the lyrics to the blues, a lot of the cliches used in the blues are used over and over again. These little bits of lines, right? Woke up this morning, the blues was all around my bed right? There's a, a typical one that shows up, uh, the blues ain't nothing but a good man feeling low. That one shows up a lot, right? So you have these various cliches, and it's not the idea, there's no no copyright violation that they're, they feel is happening here. It's that there is this collective fund of images that are being drawn upon and that are used in different ways. Here's a good example. Let's hear a little bit of a song called Trouble in Mind, which almost feels like a compilation of these uh, of these cliches. So notice at least two things there. First, 
Uh, trouble in mind, I'm blue, but I won't be blue always. This notion of the I, right? This isn't a we, this is an I. You might relate to the feelings of the, of the narrator, but they're expressed as his or her feelings. On the other hand, there's also not just lament here, right? The sun's gonna shine through my back door someday. Uh, there's hope, and not only hope, but hope that one can find one's place, that it's my back door through which the sun will shine, right? My place in the world that I'm carving out for myself. In other words, the blues often, maybe not always, but often, deals with what we may, might think of as an existential crisis. What is my place in the world? How do I function in it? Is there room for me? Now, to a certain extent, we can see this as the, the plight of black society after the Civil War. What is their place? Uh, and, and, and you can think of that in, in numerous ways. On the one hand, the Jim Crow uh, society of, of the uh, 1880s through, you know, 1950s to 60s, uh, would insist that blacks have to occupy a very specific p place reserved for them by white society. And yet the civil rights movement is of course founded on the idea of an expansive notion of place, that their place is alongside others. Or perhaps, depending on which aspect of the civil rights movement we're talking about, they, their place may be separate from others uh, from whites in some ways that they will, that, that blacks will only be able to function properly uh, if they're allowed separation from whites that's after all the Marcus Garvey line and the Marcus Garvey line came in part from his adaptation of thoughts from Booker T Washington now Lawrence Levine in his book um, black culture and black consciousness offers a very interesting suggestion he say, says that part of this move toward the individual expression of the blues as opposed to the communal expression of say the spirituals and, and the work songs is through this this concern of booker t washington's with the new place of the of the black person in american society now levine doesn't do much to build on that insight or that possibility and so i thought we would explore that a little bit here Booker T. Washington, in a series of essays, uh, encourages the use of labor as a means of, as, as he puts it, a kind of object lesson to white society. That it's through the cultivation of their own efforts toward labor and black business ownership, right? That's a part that's often underplayed in what um, Booker T. Washington said now, but that was one of the most important parts to figures like Marcus Garvey and Elijah Muhammad, and then later, of course, Louis Farrakhan. What Booker T. Washington was, was suggesting was that the special insight that African Americans received from slavery was of the efficacy, was an insight into the efficacy of work and the dangers of work. That work can be made to be just menial, demeaning labor. But that work in and of itself is not that. Work is a way of shaping the world and shaping your place in the world. And so he was encouraging, much to the chagrin of other figures like W.E.B. Du Bois, he was encouraging labor, not really, even though he's sometimes accused of this, not really as a means of acquiescence to, to white prejudice, but rather as a way of offering, as he puts it, an object lesson to white supremacy. That if you can show, if black people can show, 
that they are self-sufficient, that they can create and maintain businesses, and especially when they get to the point where they have ownership of lands that they then rent to white people, that at that point, White people will have no choice but to honor their votes, to honor their political opinions. Now, we might see this as somewhat naive uh, and, and because we've seen the abuses that came from that, right? Um, in, a, in a later episode, we'll talk about Barry Gordy's family, the, the founder of Motown, who left the South specifically. His father left the South specifically because he was so uh, successful, and that he was riling up white envy. And so in order to maintain his wealth and in order to maintain his life, he felt it safest to leave the South and move to Detroit. So we know that this is somewhat naive, but this was Booker T. Washington's concern. And notice the, the essay that I'm referring to here. It's called The Awakening of the Negro. And I think that's a very significant title. He feels it's what, what's happening after the Civil War is an awakening a coming to consciousness, a realization of something that they have that they can use, that blacks can use in order to uh, participate more fully uh, in, in, the, in the public sphere. The famous line, of course, from the, the Atlanta speech is that uh, we can be in all things um, separate, like the five fingers, and yet in, in, through means of mutual progress, we can be one united like the hand. I'm paraphrasing, but that's more or less the idea. But Booker T. Washington also was very concerned with this idea that that kind of separation was not permanent, that it was temporary, that this sense, and here we're coming back to the blues, the sense of the liminality of black life was not a permanent thing, that what they would do is demonstrate that they have something that others don't have, and that that would be the thing that would bring in white interest. And he tells a series of stories. This idea of the object lesson is something he returns to over and over again, that, that instead of changing laws, which isn't going to change opinion, what one has to do is present an object lesson to show that one is able to take care of oneself, to take care of one's business, to fulfill one's obligations, and that that will inevitably bring respect. Now, returning to Lawrence Levine's idea, we might ask ourselves, well, how does this really fit with the blues? Okay, the, the emphasis on the individual. Oh, all right, but that's a fairly, you don't need Booker T. Washington for that, right? Uh, the, the emphasis on the individual alone doesn't tell us all that much. So what is it, perhaps, about this idea of a new individuality, of this idea of having something that others may want? Right? And again, we're returning to this notion of the blues artist as occupying a liminal space, the betwixt and the between. Because on the one hand, there's this sense of the individual making his, his or her, but mostly his, way through the world. Self-sufficient in the sense that, you know, you have the guitar and you have the voice and you're doing all the parts. It's all about you in one sense. And yet in another sense, with the communal not just the communal lyrics, but the communal licks and the, the approaches to harmony, those voice-leading um, approaches that we were talking about last time, that that's a way of connecting into uh, connecting to a larger social fabric, right? So the individual isn't cut free. It's not simply a, a, a resting away from tradition, but a transformation yet again of tradition, that those elements of call and response, those elements that, that are drawn out of the work songs and drawn out of the spirituals are now being brought out of the more religious realm of the spirituals into a secular spirituality, 
And the blues often deals with elements of spirituality for all of its concern with, with sex and with, with um, you know, drunkenness and, and other kinds of, of secular, obviously secular behaviors. There's often a calling out to the other, the otherworldly, a calling out to, to God, perhaps, or to some larger force as an explanation for one's plight, as an explanation for one's caught in the situation that one's caught in, caught at the crossroads. Well, what does that sound like if not existentialism? And I think that that's really the key here. Booker T. Washington, although we don't usually think of him this way, is perhaps one of the, the great existentialists, or proto-existentialists if you prefer, of that era. Because what is he talking about? He's talking about a situation where people are no longer tied to the way that they had seen the world. The future is open to a series of possibilities, and yet not just any possibility. You can't do anything you want. Things aren't set to, to, to rights immediately. And he's preaching this kind of acceptance of that, acceptance of the absurdity of one's situation, while also trying to find ways to leave a mark. That's the, that's the whole emphasis on work, right? He's interested in work, but in a new way, a better way, a wise way. That's what he taught at Tuskegee uh, University, was, was this idea of not just working hard, but working better, using the latest technology, learning how to do things in a scientific way learning how to, to put the right crops in or learning how to um, manage your own woodworking business or whatever it was so that your success was dependent upon the firmness of your knowledge. It doesn't change the fact that the world may still be utterly against you. And this, I think, is the shared resource or the shared foundation with the blues artists. Because here, the individual is occupying this liminal, existential loneliness. The traditions of the past are still around, but they're not guaranteeing one's place in the world. The suffering of the past hasn't completely abated either. It's changed. The situation's changed fairly radically in some ways, and in other ways, not nearly enough. And so you're carrying forth that suffering. You have this new notion of the possibilities of the individual, and yet not all possibilities are open to you. And I don't mean that in a simple sense. I mean, all possibilities are never open to any of us. But the possibilities that you see other people enjoying, that you see white people enjoying, are not open to you. And this, to me, is the key to the notion that, that perhaps the blues individuality relates in some way to the notions of Booker T. Washington. Because what's opening up here is a new liminal space. Blues artists belong to society, and yet they're somehow just outside of it. Their claims on society are not always heard, not always respected. And yet, they're offering something that other people don't have. That becomes the veneration of these artists, right? That's why we have these legends about figures like Robert Johnson, because they seem to come from this almost otherworldly existence. They're part of our world, and yet somehow just beyond our reach, just beyond what we can imagine. They have responded to the same kind of existential crisis that we might face, that we inevitably face, standing there at the crossroads. And yet somehow they brought into being a new place, a kind of no place, that they occupy and that we can share.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you wish to know more about this podcast, please visit www.chadwitchjenkins.com and click on the page for Sound Philosophy. Also, feel free to write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. That is cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and hope to hear from you soon. Thank you.